when I talk about the new vision for my business, the reactions I get from people are very powerful and that reinforces to me, okay, there is a space for this in the world. The world needs this. I'm a person that can, can bring this to the world. That's Rosemary Danes Carney, award-winning businesswoman, scholar, data governance and GDPR specialist and founder of The Care Advocate. Rosemary is a beautiful example of the idea that everything she has done has brought her to here. The Care Advocate is at its early stages and yet it has a powerful remit to advocate for a world where care is prioritised, visible and valued. Join me as we explore how all this came about. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. There's a thing I talk about a lot with clients and with people on this podcast, which is about bringing your whole self to a business, but also that we're here with purpose and everything that we've done has led up to here. And I found someone who is the beautiful embodiment, and this is like, I'm giving her pressure now, but anyway, but it is beautiful embodiment of this idea. And she's a scholar, a businesswoman, a carer, a data governance person, an advocate, and more. Welcome, Rosemary Danes Carney. Thanks, Fanola. Thank you for that introduction. You're most <laughs> welcome. But it's so true. Like, I really thought about our conversations, and there were so many parts that I really loved. And I think my favorite bit, right? My favorite bit is when you said, I have to tell you something funny, Fanola. When I was a child, I wanted to be a missionary and as a teen, a human rights lawyer. I would love you to tell that story of all the parts of your journey, starting from the child, because I think Mm. I just love how you've integrated. And the other thing that I love about this and I want you to share with people is the importance of self-awareness as well in this process, because you're also a psychologist. So. Oh my God, you have such a long list of things. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I was born on, I uh, know I won't talk about that far. Um, yeah, I, I was raised in a Catholic household and spirituality um, and a connection to, I suppose, a religious faith was very important. Um, so we had nightly prayers. Mo- more than more than uh, more than the average family, you think? Is it or is it the typical? No, I would think because what my parents did was they took their faith and they they created a structure that had meaning for them. So in our nightly prayers, it wasn't a rote prayer. They created a structure which was I, I can't quite remember. Maybe I think we did, and our father and a hail mary, but then we. Yeah thought about our family and we had, you know, eight of our aunts and uncles who were spread around the world. We used to pray for them every night. So every Monday it was, you know, Mary in America and every Tuesday it was Mary in Australia. And it was 
I suppose it was a structure, um, you know, and going to mass and we sang in the choirs and we used to go to prayer groups. Um, and so my early childhood was exposed to, I suppose, an organized religion. And I went to Catholic school and I, you know, had an, a, a very close ad to a nun. And I always had a sense of being, I suppose, there's some things in the world that aren't quite right and I'd like to change them or to work to change them. And what I saw or what I was exposed to was missionary nuns, not really knowing what they did, but I wanted to travel. I always have wanted to travel and I wanted to contribute positively to the world. So at one school assembly, the, our head teacher, who was a nun at the time, you know, said to whatever 600 or 800 girls that were there, who would like to be a nun? And I was the sole hand that went up yeah. in it. Um, and I was very committed to it because not so much, I, I, I think, the faith part of it, um, but the purpose part of it, that you're connected in to... Um, a lifestyle that was bigger than your own. And I think that's what is always, um, I, I felt. And how old were you to have that insight? I, I'm going to say 10, 10, 10 to 12, some age around that. Um, and it was, you know, in my teenage years and as you get more exposure to things and I've subsequently left the church, I, I wouldn't subscribe to any organized religion, although I'm a very spiritual person. Um, you know, we were, I was, I was exposed to kind of law and again, you know, I done debating and public speaking and, you know, I kind of, I, I'm not shy about having an opinion about things. And I thought yeah. again, human rights lawyer sounds good, but I only discovered that, that I wanted to do that or remembered about four years ago, five years ago. When I found a letter that I had written to myself, as you know, we do you do mm. these exercises in first year, and it was you know save this letter, write this letter, give it to yourself when you're eighteen, and I actually had given it to the aunt uh, who was unknown, and she posted it to me, and and I kept it, but I put it in a box, and you know these boxes came from my parents' house um, at that time, and I was going through, and I was in the midst of a crisis. I had been made redundant. I was, wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. I was setting up my own business and I found this letter. And it really brought home a part to my, you know, of myself to myself. Um, and I didn't really know what it meant at that time, but it kind of gave me a signal, well, whatever has happened and you've been made redundant and all that kind of stuff, which is a really difficult thing to go through you know, maybe there's a different purpose to you, for you, out of it. And so it connected me into that part of myself. Um, How providential. Mm, um, mm. And I, I suppose I've always had the, it is in me I, again to be a contemplative person and to to sit with myself and to listen. And I think one of the ways my brain operates is it naturally filters through noise. So I I 
can be in a room with people and I'll be listening. But what I find myself doing is trying to hone into, well, what's, you know, what's really happening here in this room and, and what's going on. And I do that with myself as well. Um, and over the last five years, particularly, I've been very involved in, you know, discovering or rediscovering that personal relationship with myself. Um, really, I, I suppose it's a journey of, you know, self-love, deep listening and trust. Um, coming from a period of my life, which was particularly difficult, into a space where I feel, you know, very good about things. Um, and none of it has been by myself. Um, but I would say I've moved from a space of coping with life into a space where I'm, I'm working at a space of healing. So uh, working with healing myself and bringing that energy into the world as well. It's a lot uh, because, first of all, the realisation that you're in a space of coping with life is enormous. And at a time in your life when you're able to do something about it, to actually transform that into this place of healing, like it, it requires this huge degree of self-awareness and that stillness and reflection point that I, I'm hopeful that more and more people are making that time for themselves. We have too much of, you know, from an entrepreneurship perspective, there's this battle against the hustle culture and the need for it to have to be that way instead of this uh, tuning into yourself to see the connections. This is why I'm, I'm really wanted to speak to you today because you consciously unlocked that, whereas often people stumble across it. I, I, and I think it was, it, it's a bit of both. I think that, yeah. you know, all my life, I, you know, I, I've done different things like journaling or, you know, going on retreats and things like that, um, which would be me being conscious about it. But I think in the, particularly the last five years, I've, I have a particular uh, friend and um, person who supports me professionally as well who recognized that I was at a particularly broken point in my life and was able to hold me in it and offer her wisdom and her skill set to allow me the space to really look at that and examine it and grow from it and develop it, develop from it. And I would have Along the way, I mean, my husband is very supportive and my family are very supportive. Um, but in this, I suppose, what I would say is the transformational space, it, it is something that I have been held in and I have been supported in. And again, I read a piece recently by um, a scholar called Dallin Mosley and she was talking about healing versus coping. And her distinction is that healing is collective. So when we are coping, we're in our individual space. But when we're healing, it's a collective action. That's a really powerful insight because it gives us, because as a phrase that you used of getting, giving yourself permission to address what was going on in your life. But, but if, if we have a fact, like for lack of a better word, if we have a fact 
that healing is collective, then it gives us permission to ask for the help. And that's so important. Um, And I have, again, go back where I was in it as a child and a teenager and in my early years, I, I'm a very independent person. I mean, my parents will tell you that absolutely from birth, totally independent, found it very difficult to open up and ask for help. And so where the contemplative part of it would have been beneficial in working through things myself, it was only to a certain point because I would then not ask for help or maybe not talk about you know, things and I just work through them on my own self. That's very interesting because you went into the caring profession. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell us that story? So we, we know that you discovered that piece of paper that said you want to be a human rights lawyer. So when, so take us to the, you know, a, a cliff note version of the, of the core kind of career to give us a sense of that. So when I finished school, I studied psychology with a view to becoming a counselling psychologist. Um, the reason for that was people told me, you know, I'd be good at it. And I thought, here's a, you know, and I enjoyed, you know, listening to people and working with people. But to be a counselling psychologist, you had to be 26 to get into the further training programme. So I went off and I worked overseas and I spent nine months traveling South America and then four months living in South Africa. Um, And I suppose I had worked in settings with psychology and I, again, it it was very individual. You were just working on with an individual person on on an individual issue. And again, with the exposure to the world, I was really looking at, well, a lot of the things that are hurting people and are affecting people are systemic and I, it really, I was like, you know, is working with the individual enough? So I went back and I studied international development with a view to working at more structural level. Um, And so then I worked in community development and I worked at homeless services and I worked for, then I worked with a family care support program um, as a project worker where we ran support groups and respite and did advocacy and information. And then with restructuring within that organization, I moved to be um, a regional coordinator and working primarily through poverty. And so that was, that's the Cliff Notes version. And that job ended with redundancy. But can I just ask you, the whole food poverty thing and, and even all of the homelessness stuff. How, so here's the obvious question for me is how did that affect you? Did it affect you? Do you become, do you become, you know, when you're working in this space, do you become motivated to change it or do you become numb to it? <clears throat> I became both, I think, in reality. Um, when I had worked in South Africa, one of the things I had worked in is I volunteered in an organisation called uh, Feedback. And it was an organisation that took food from the government buildings and from factories. So one of the things that really struck me there was we went to a fish processing factory and they were preparing the fillets of fish that we see in our supermarkets. And then the charity was taking the offcuts and bringing them out to um, townships uh, into the community centres there and then they would be distributed out. And that gave me a, a connection to, well, a lot of this is maybe bigger than one person can do. So it gave me maybe a sense of realism. Um, I 
always felt connected to the people that we were working with. And so I was never known to the people that you were, you know, I was working with. I think it's you maybe get a little bit jaded or a little bit disenfranchised or a little bit, you know, if you're really trying to look at, you know, how do we change something that stops this happening? Um, but I learned myself how to, to manage that in myself as well. Mm. Yeah. How did you learn? It's a, I, again, this contemplative part of myself was partly it. So putting in a really strong program of self-care um, and working in organizations where that was also part of the principles of it. So I think in a caring industry, you can't care for other people if you don't care for yourself. It's really important that you care for yourself. And I think you refer there to the hustle and, and particularly when you run your own business, it's very difficult um, to make the time and make the the commitment to caring for yourself. And I think we saw people in COVID and when the world stopped, people realizing actually maybe there is a different way here and, you know, how do I do it? And I think sadly, a lot of that lesson just got, I, I feel we, we've lost a lot of that, that space that we created um, for ourselves to consider a different way of life. Um, I've been very lucky that I've had really good people around me all my career, all my work, um, really good managers really good colleagues, people that you can talk to about things, you know, in, in frontline, in my frontline work, we would have debriefing sessions. So at the end of every shift, you'd go in and you'd say, well, this is what happened. And if so, you were taking nothing home. So that was a really good structure that was in place. And um, in, in the work with the carers, I just had a really great colleague who was very receptive, very good. And again, we had really good, strong structures in place around looking after each other in, in our work as well. So it's a, it's a journey all the time, though, that things that worked for me when I was younger don't necessarily work for me now as well. So I've learned to really listen to myself and to not be upset with myself if that thing that I did, we talked a little bit about sea swimming and I used to, you know, go for the dips and COVID and I'm not doing them now. Worked really well for me at the time. You know, I've learned before, I think in my mindset, I would have been very critical if I had talked to you. I would have been like, oh God, I'm not doing that now. And I, you know, I should be running. I've got to run straight down to the sea and jump in because I haven't done it in ages. What I've learned is to be very compassionate with myself and to say, you know, it, it's fine that you're not doing that. And I've also learned that to, to try and be much more in tune with the seasonality of myself. And I've realized I kind of have a three month period of doing things where I'm really good. And then after that, no matter the best will in the world, I move on to something else. And to start to see that now as a strength, as opposed to, you know, a stick that I can beat myself with. So it's this conversation with myself now. And I think age and maturity and life experience brings that. Um, knowledge and, and wisdom with us. Yeah, I love for me. 
the sea swimming is very interesting for me because um, it's it's absolutely therapeutic. And at this time of the year, when you can't swim for long, you it's not about burning calories or you know getting getting all the the swim in. Know what I mean? Uh, but I find. I find the cold water is amazing and I find like it's hilarious because and I know some people cringe, but so it's minus three. Yesterday was minus three. Today's minus two. We're like, woohoo, it's another degree warmer. <laughs> and in the water, it's it's seven point nine degrees at the moment. And um, my and it's crystal clear. And I put my face in the water and. There is this cold, I've learned so much from it. And that I think that's the biggest thing. I've learned so much. There's so many uh, physical things that I've learned about my body and what it's able to do. And the fact that the body wants to move. I've learned so much um, from, a, a, from a mental space of, for me, it's like, I am consistently doing this. This is, I can do this. And also that idea of, if I can do this, I can do anything. And then there's also the stuff of the, what micro changes you make in how you swim, the impact it has on how you swim, the tiny things, the complexity of it, the simplicity of it, the freedom of it. I'll stop now. (laughs) You don't have to. So we all have different experience. What I love is we all have different experiences. And and that's this truth that you're speaking, which is we have to know what's working for us. And I can't really add anything more because you you just spoke about the the experience so beautifully there. Um, And it sounds to me like you, when you're in that space you're also in conversation with yourself and I don't think that we allow ourselves enough time to have conversations with ourselves and that's that's where we can really connect in with you know our our purpose our needs our our true state and for me, over the last number of years, particularly connecting in with myself has allowed me to envisage a life and a business that is deeply aligned with my principles and my beliefs and my values, that's responsive to the needs of my day-to-day life and as busy as it is and as everyone's day-to-day life is and has brought great richness into my life in ways that I couldn't have imagined. Um, And so I think creating spaces for people, and and it's very hard if you're in a busy job with a busy family, with a busy life, to do that. And and I'm not saying it's easy. Um, Sometimes it's really hard when you hear people talking about things and you go, gosh, you know, it is hard and uh, and for me I've seen things that I wrote three, four or five years ago I would like for myself that you know I, I, I keep having this aspiration I'll be able to get up early in the morning and do an hour of exercise before the kids get up and over the summer I was able to do it 
and over the winter I'm in my bed and yeah. and I don't know if I'll ever get back to it. So for me, what I recognize it's a process and, and it's baby steps. It's what you talked about there, those you know, those those micro changes. That's really what I'm trying to focus in on in my life is the micro changes that I can make um, rather than the big grand changes. Because I've had enough big grand changes in my life. I, you know, I, I really would like it, 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 but it's focusing on those micro changes and looking at, you know, what do I need to change maybe in a, in a tiny, tiny way and how can I bring that into my life and then building on those. Yeah. And great change happens when you do it that way. Let's return for a moment. There was a, so you were regional coordinator and then um, that awful experience of being made redundant. I don't think I realized how awful it was or how hard it is. I had two interviews um, on this podcast before, one with Eva Blake and the other one with uh, the name has a lot. Uh, I, it'll come back to me, but I remember uh, Louise McDonnell and uh, they found it very, it was um, a very challenging, it, it affects your identity and your sense of self yeah. and your sense of worth. Yeah, absolutely. Are you okay to share this next stage of your journey? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a funny situation because I wasn't happy in my job. And I knew that redundancy was coming. So I was on maternity leave. I take an extended maternity leave. And during, you know, when I went on maternity leave, I'd said to my husband, you know, I mightn't have a job to go back to. So I'd had loads of time in some ways to get my head around it. But when it did happen, it, it really shook me. And I think the uncertainty of your life, it brings all that into play. But what you talked about there, the identity, and if I'm not this person and I'm not good enough for them to keep, you know, if they really wanted me, they'd have found a way, you know, in our case, it was funding, you know, they'd have found the funding or they'd have done this to keep me. They really, you know, it's about me and it becomes a very personal rejection. In some ways, I, I it's like when you're you know, if you're broken up by somebody that you're in love with, it's that shattering of your confidence. Who am I now? Yeah, who am I now and what do I do? Um but I'm really grateful because if if I hadn't have happened to me, I'd have never left my job, I think, because financially, you know, I kids and mortgage family, you know, the financial security was very important. But you chose entrepreneurship instead of another job. That's and it is, it's the particular uh, uh, industry that you chose to get into, I find interesting. You know, I'd worked for nearly 20 years in the community and voluntary sector. And, you know, as people who work in that sector now, it's not well paid. And there's, you know, you're at, you're, you're, you know, you're at a certain salary level. And I was just tired of it. I was tired of it, you know. And I decided to retrain in data protection and GDPR because the GDPR was coming. Because it's such the the most obvious thing for you to do, of course. <laughs> and yet I could. It is in retrospect, is, but yeah. I find it hilarious. Well, I was able to align myself to it because I'd always done it in my jobs naturally because I really believe that when you're working with vulnerable people, it's essential that you keep their information safe and secure. So out of that, 
just really strong belief I had taken it on in my job. So before it was a thing, I was just doing it and setting up structures and stuff and knowing the legislation and that just out of a pure, we've got vulnerable people here. You know, it's really important. We have the right things in place to keep their information safe and to protect it for them. Um, I was also able to align it to myself because GDPR is human rights legislation. So its background is the fundamental charter of human rights in Europe. It dates back to the Second World War and how Nazi Germany was able to abuse personal data in order to locate the categories of people that they wanted to bring to concentration camps because they had a very good system in place. And so I... I was able to align myself or align, you know, align myself to it because of its human rights background and my own belief in the absolute, you know, need to keep personal data safe in, in organizations. And, um, and I figured, you know, I knew people who were working in the area. They said there's going to be loads of work, um, out there. There'll be loads of jobs. It's, it's a growth area. And I thought, right, well, chance fresh, you know, fresh, um, page, clean sheet, um, and we'll go. And because I had been made redundant, there were supports in place um, to um, start business. But I I considered it, I but I only considered it because of my family circumstances, because I have uh, three children, two of whom have additional needs. And I didn't know how I was going to approach an employer to say, well, I might have to go with drop the hat or I, I just couldn't see how to sell myself in an interview. I'm not able to lie. I'm a really bad liar and I just didn't know. People were saying, just don't tell them. But then I was like, I'm setting myself up to fail because I don't have the stability in life that, you know, a high pressure, high paying job requires. So what do I do? So I... I took the back to work enterprise allowance and I said, right, I'll just go and do it. I'll just set up a business, leap of faith and see where it brings me. Um, and that was nearly five years ago now. Mm. Yeah, bravo. But in that, it's only last year that I've really felt that I'm a businesswoman. Say more about that. So I never really felt I committed to the path of being an entrepreneur until last year. I kind of reacted to the circumstances around me. And again, it's this coping versus healing. So coping with life, you know, being running my own business, being a consultant, working in the sector, it was the best way to deal with a particular set of circumstances. I never had a drive to be an entrepreneur. I never saw myself as being an entrepreneur. I never you know, it was never something in my wish list of things. And I go through missionary, non-human rights lawyer, entrepreneur wasn't in there. In fact, it was just, I was like, why would people do it? You know, it's such hard work and you're putting yourself out there and, you know, where's your paycheck coming from and where's your stability? And I just, it's a world I just couldn't imagine for myself. So when I did it in the back of my mind, it was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always go back, you know, to the PAYE sector. I can always apply for a job and I'd you know, keep an eye out in jobs and go, oh, I could apply for this one. I could apply for that one. So I always had, I wouldn't say one foot in, one foot out, but certainly 
30% of me wasn't fully committed to it. And Did that affect your how you work then? I don't, I, it doesn't affect how I work. It affects how I dream and how I vision and how I, how I, you know, where I see the business going. It, it affected that. So I was kind of in a, we'll see where it goes. You know, the work side, yeah. Um, in the last year, I've really stepped into, right, I don't want to go back to the PAYE sector. I really love being my own boss, you know. And I have a dream and a vision and something I feel that I uniquely can offer the world that isn't going to fit with somebody else's agenda. So there's a line from a poem in Victus and it's, you know, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. And that's the space I moved into last year where I was like, I'm, I'm not a first mate. I'm not, I'm not a deckhand. I'm captaining my ship and I'm committing fully to it. How did it feel? How did it feel when you made that shift in your thinking? It feels brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Because I don't have the self-doubt. I have self-doubt continuously. I think maybe everybody does. But I don't have the self-doubt about... um, what I'm offering to the world. How I offer it is where the self-doubt comes in, like what services am I bringing? Who am I going to talk to? Where am I getting my clients? That The, the operational side. But again, go back to the visioning and the dreaming part. But when I talk about the new vision for my business, the next stage, the evolution of it, the reactions I get from people are very powerful and, and that reinforces to me you know, it affirms to me that, okay, there there is a space for this in the world. The world needs this. And, you know, I'm I'm a person that can can bring this to the world. So let's talk about what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Very obscure. <laughs> teasing everyone. Teasing everyone. <laughs> yeah. So this is the care advocate. This is the care advocate, yeah. Which makes now, as people are listening, makes complete sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I'm, it, it, it's the bringing home of all the parts of myself and that, that journey from the child, you know, through the various stages of my life. And it's bringing my personal and my professional experience together into an offering. Um, you know, putting my talents and my skills at the service of people and getting financial return for them. And I think learning to accept financial return, you know, that has been part of the process as well. Say more about that, learning to accept financial return. I So I think as people, you know, people who feel maybe they want to do something, you know, in community and in society and create change or um, have a have a mission or, you know, or that or women or Irish women, you know, we find it difficult to get paid and and ask, you know, ask for what we're worth. It's it's something that's not in our psyche. It's not naturally instilled in us. But also to define that worth. It's not 
we're not even at the point. It's the it's the knowing what you're worth first before you know how to ask for it. It's very common. Specifically, you know, like it's interesting because you it's the care advocate and your caring background. It is absolutely the nurturing space, the caring space, that purpose and mission space that there is a and I know this from all of the clients I've dealt with, that flip of a switch to to going, but I should be just giving this to the world. Which is what what's your thought on that? I won't make my comment. I, I think if you have finances behind you where you don't need you know, you can pay for your food and your home and your children and stuff, absolutely give it to the world. But if you need to earn a living, you need to get paid and and that's okay. Because if I'm giving it to the world, that means I have to work on something else in order to get paid. Because I don't have the, you know, the finance, financial resources to do it for free. But I would even advocate that that's not enough. There has to be more because it's not just about getting just enough oxygen. It's not, it's got, it's, it's, I would go as far as to say it's very similar to your 30% in. If you're, if you're, sorry, 30% out, 30% of you is not in. If you don't have enough to be comfortable, it's like, as you said, how can I dream? Absolutely. You have to create the space to dream. And there is a part of this, not just our psyche and our spirituality and our belief and all that. There is this financial aspect of it, of space to dream. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. And I remember, um, a number of years ago, I think it was 20, maybe 20, somewhere 2020. And I had gone to, uh, I'd been doing a couple of different things around setting goals, setting and, and different things like that. And I wrote three goals for myself um, to be professionally fulfilled, to be financially secure and to be, you know, connected to community and, and my values and beliefs. And I'd recently changed that second goal to go from being financially secure to you know, being financially wealthy. And and that's the growth, that's the dream, because as you say, that gives freedom. That, you know, and gives yes, you fuel. It gives you fuel. It takes away. And because we have lived, you know, there was a period of time when we lived just on social welfare. And that's what we had as our income for a number of years because of different circumstances. And that's really tough. There's no space to dream when every penny is accounted for, you know, it, it's, it's very, very tough. Um, and I think if you're running your own business and you're putting your time, your effort, you know, your skills, your heart, your soul into it, you need to be getting a return out of it or else, you know, why put yourself through the hardship of it? You know, it is the hardest thing I've done in terms of a job is set up a business and keep it going over the five years and provide for my family. Um, you know, that is singularly the hardest thing. There's easier ways I could have done it. So I think for anyone who's out there running their own business, it is, it's a slight change. And, and I, again, I just recently did a business course at the NEO and the facilitator, Blaise Brosnan, his, his message was, you know, if you're running your own business, you have to make it worthwhile for yourself. You know, at the end of the day, when you retire, you want to make sure you have like a pension in your back pocket. You want to make sure that you're able to have a good life. 
Well, I all what the thing that I find myself saying is it's not enough to make it. Making a difference is really important. I, I feel it very passionately. But it's not enough to make a difference to everyone else. You have to make a difference to you too. I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah. Where some of the other things that were interesting in our conversations were about being self-aware enough and know to know at an early stage in the business that you were approaching burnout. Mm. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. I set up the business in summer 2019, January 2020. My husband got very sick and March 2020, we entered COVID lockdowns. And June 2020, I was on my knees. I wasn't even on my knees. I was on my back. I was absolutely floored. And that's where my friend that I refer to, you know, she rang me one day to see how I was and I was just lying on the bed weeping. And she was able to hold me in that space. And it was, it was, you know, that witnessing of brokenness is, is important, but also, um, that allowed me to experience it and not carry it and then start to, to move on and put steps in place to look after myself. And so I, you know, did a program of counseling and, you know, did a, you know, started bringing in, that's where I wrote the list of eight, you know, I'd like to be getting up and do an hour exercise in the morning. And she said, you already have enough on your plate. Why are you trying to get up an hour earlier? You know, and, um, you know, that was, so I got through that phase. But I, I loved the thing where you became conscious enough to to put a stop on things to say, I need to take care of myself now. Yeah. Yeah. And you told people, I need to take care of myself now. And then and you realized things like you needed to get out of the house. So you found a place to go and work. And that that's the piece I find really interesting to to share with people to actually acknowledge I'm approaching burnout. I've got to reach out, tell people. Yeah. That happened two years later. So my, my 2020 burnout, I didn't tell people I was reaching burnout. Yeah. I coped with it. I dealt with it. And life moved on. In 2020, we just had a series of unfortunate events that happened, um, could happen, you know, happen to people every day. But for me, where I had been operating on a carefully balanced scale of things, the quick succession of unfortunate events tipped me over the edge. And I abs- that that's, but the two years of work prior to that had taught me that if I really want to deal with this, now I need to tell people and I need to really action this for myself to put things in place so that I don't end up permanently sick. But for me, hearing you say that, I felt it was the most empowering thing that I heard of you because there's shame attached to asking mm. for help. Absolutely. And shame yeah. attached to burnout. And, oh, you, did, you weren't able yeah. to do it, to be hard enough. You know what I mean? That, that piece. So, And I find this much more empowering to go, oh, I, I need to take care of myself. Mm. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you can't even argue with it when someone says that to you. What I found is that when I did start talking about it, the shame went away because people were like, of course, look at all you're doing, <laughs> you know, or I've been through something similar or, you know, so like I went to my GP and, 
you should put me on a program of anti-anxiety tablets to help me sleep because I wasn't sleeping. I was up with nightmares at night. I might, I wasn't eating or if I was eating, it was all the wrong kinds of stuff. I wasn't exercising. I had no capacity to really be there for my children in the way I wanted to be. Like I was there and, and that would, um, so it was dealing with the fundamentals first. You know, that's what we worked on, getting good sleep, you know, reducing down the stressors that I could do, taking things off my plate. So I'm I'm also doing a PhD at the you know, for the I'm in my final year of that. That that's that's why I, I love doing my PhD. That's why I like my mom said to me, Why are you doing it? Why would you not do something for yourself? And I was like, No, this is doing something for myself. Like this is for purely for me, really. Um but I, I talked to my supervisor and he was like, take the summer off, look after yourself. And if you're not able to come back full time, we can work, you know, part time and here's all the different options. So he immediately just stepped into a space of going, look after yourself. But I think it's a message I'd like to get to people, which this is a place of power to ask for help. Absolutely. A place of power to be self-aware enough to go. I, I'm not right. I, I need to, I need to send, I need to now give to myself. The, there's a, a phrase I hate, <laughs> which is you have to give yourself the oxygen mask first. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're so immune to that phrase and it's all logical and all the good thing, but nobody, I don't think that has ever motivated. Well, maybe it has at being flippant. Definitely doesn't motivate me. <laughs> so it's this sense of, presence to listen to to when you when you tune in and listen you have more power and autonomy over yourself and freedom over your own choices you start to remember you're free i think for us it's very hard because looking after yourself feels selfish and i think for me i felt say my 2020 experience there was a lot of stuff going on and I got to the point where I was back able to manage and that because going deeper into the asking for help felt selfish because all of these other people need help and care and all that stuff. You know, I can't ask for help too, you know. I think what I've learned is, I and, and it was the mantra and, and this would come from when I was working with family carers and I would say to them, you know, if you don't look after yourself, how can you look after your loved ones? And so it was really a process of me practicing what I preached and really living it and saying, if I don't look after myself, I'm not going to be able to look after the people that are most important to me in my life. You know, I'm I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, and that took, that moved it from a space of feeling, oh, it's selfish for me to look after myself. It's never selfish to look after yourself, but in my thought process and allow, allowing myself to get into a space of doing it was really saying, no, I'm actually, it, by looking after myself, I'm also looking after them. And by being in touch with my humanity, I'm also seeing what's divine about myself because in our in our absolute humanity is there's absolute beauty and I that's what makes us special as 
you know, as a people and as a race, we feel things, we experience things, you know, we're not um, observers of life. Like I love nature, I'm very connected to nature, trees and the plants, you know, they, they, they're kind of existing and they're doing what we're doing. We have, you know, we, these experiences that are heartbreaking and traumatic and devastating and beautiful and joyous. You know, we have this great richness of emotional and spiritual and mental um, and physical life. Um, and allowing ourselves to be in that is beautiful and it's an honoring you know, of ourselves, of people around us. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, sure, I'm not so bad. They're in a lot worse situation than me. But everybody's situation is unique. And the, the weights and the worries that, I, that we carry individually, they're ours. Uh, they're what we have to deal with. And allowing a, a chink of light into, into your life and people really seeing that, then you find out so much about other people as well. And we all realize actually we're all the same in a lot of ways. We're all dealing with with stuff like nobody's life is perfect. And that can that creates connection at a, at a deeper level. And going back to that COVID experience, I think we had a chink of that connection at a deeper level, that sense of of collectiveness and and again that collectiveness brings healing, brings change. And that that's a wonderful thing. Agreed. I wanted just one last thing I want to ask you about because we kind of skirted over it and I, I feel it's important. And it's this next stage, this vision for the next stage. And because what struck me most of all, and I know it's early stages, so you're, you're probably, it's still forming in itself. But can you share specifically what is the care advocate? Because I find it interesting because I feel it's a culmination. And, and I feel that very often when I'm working with clients, I'm having to explain to them that you bring all of yourself. And I just love that this feels so much of all of yourself. So what can you share? There's some you probably in your fermenting and then there's others that perhaps you can share, but give us like a quick snapshot of what the care advocate is. Yeah. So the care advocate is, it's about making care prioritized um, and visible. Where my journey has really centered in is this framework of care. So how I've lived my life and how I've gone through my jobs and how I've, you know, got through personal things. It's been about really self-care and, and really coming into this framework of care and I feel care is one of these I suppose higher states like gratitude and um, so it's building this framework of care into making um, caring workplaces for all um, and putting care at the heart of all policies, services, products and decisions. So that's the very high vision. But that that's the thing I wanted you to share with people because early on, you realized this whole idea that we needed systemic change. And I wanted that piece to come across for people that that you can have this bigger dream and all of these things that you've done, which is 
the GDPR stuff, understanding about the connection to human rights legislation, that you can bring all of these steps along the way means we can even see this starting to shape in the care advocate and the importance of it because we need to take care of our carers. That's it. And and my, I suppose the phase one is working with healthcare workers and people who are in the care, caring sector. It's all, because we are in the middle of a wave of, you know, older people who re- are requiring care and um, all of us will require care at, at some stage and, and the structures that are in place for them and, and seeing that our care workers aren't necessarily happy in what they're doing, they want to do it but what's around them isn't supporting them to do it. And that's creating a lot of, of problems. So working with uh, that sector, uh, you know, to assess that and look at uh, how that can be worked through for 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 them. So also we're at the start of a wave, which is for family carers in the workplace. And, you know, my own parents are heading into their 70s now and, you know, who knows what that's going to bring. And we have so many people who are, caring for family members, whether it's children or parents or both. And our workplaces aren't set up to look after them, like keeping particularly women in the workplace who find themselves in caring roles. So we're at the crest of that wave. Um, You know, family caring is how our healthcare system is supported. Uh, And it's only going to become more important as we move to you know, virtual care and telehealth and all the great things that are are coming forward in our healthcare system is reliant on having people at home to look after the patient as well. And that's going to put more stress and strain on people and our workplaces. We can't lose everybody. We, you know, carers want to work as well. It's great for mental health, for financial health, for social, you know, connectedness and um, so our workplaces, you know, it's looking at them and how can they be designed to. Yeah, the model has to be changed. Mm. Yeah. So that's phase one. I love it. I'm, I want you to come back and tell us as it evolves. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I'd love to. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Rosemary, what would you like to leave people with today? I think it's really going back to this that we can't do everything ourselves. We are part of a collective. And if we can tap into a collective caring mm. for each other, we are, we can create something that's really beautiful and powerful and a great space to live in. But to remember that you're not alone and remember it's okay to ask for help and remember that what you're doing is enough. Beautiful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Rosemary, connect with her on LinkedIn and check out rmdkconsultancy.ie and thecareadvocate.ie. And if you'd like to support the show, please follow or subscribe on your chosen platform. It makes all the difference to the impact that I'd love this podcast to have on the world. Deeper conversations that allow us to grow, to celebrate each other's truths, and to know that there are many who are working with a greater purpose in the world.